0: Hey, Buy the Book listeners, Kristen here. Did you know that you can receive a weekly Buy the Book affirmation mini-sode plus the rules of every book that we've lived by? It's easy. All you have to do is become a member of our Patreon community. To learn more, go to patreon.com listen to buy the book. Again, that's patreon.com slash listen to buy the book or just look at the episode description from today's show. The following podcast contains barnyard language and some adult content. So, maybe listen on headphones if you're at work or around small children. Now, here's the show.
2: Hey, Kristen.
0: Yeah, Jolenta.
2: Did you know that of all the books we've lived by, there's only one author whose books we've lived by twice?
0: Oh, yes, I do. We lived by that author's first and third book. Mhm. Can you
2: guys guess which author we're talking about? I am talking to you, listeners.
0: Yeah, can you guys remember Huga? that author is?
2: Oh, Kristen, <laughs> she did just give you two hints right there. <laughs>
0: two little hints?
2: Mm-hmm. And there's a third. Uh, let's just <laughs> tell them. Let's just tell them who it is. The author of The Art of Making Memories and The Little Book of Huga, Mike Viking. And
0: we're about to talk to him. Oh, yes, we are. Because I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jalenta Greenberg. And this is By the Book. That's right. It's time for another "By the Book" bonus episode—a between seasons treat for your ears. And today, we're talking with the only author whose books we've lived by twice, Mike Viking. And when I say we, Jolenta, I really mean you, because <laughs> I was having technical issues that day. It's I was true. in New Zealand. None of my internet was working. It, it was a sad, sad day for me because I really wanted to talk to Mike Viking. But fortunately. Your internet was working, and you got to talk to him. Um, Jalanta, remind us who Mike Viking is.
2: Well, Mike Viking is the author of many best-selling books, including The Little Book of Huga, The Little Book of Luca, and The Art of Making Memories. He's also the founder and CEO of the Happiness Research Institute and the Research Associate for Denmark at the World Database of Happiness.
0: Oh, my gosh. I know you had such a great conversation with him. I did. Can we get into it right now? I need to hear everything you two talked about.
2: Let's take a little listen. Thank you so, so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: We are so excited to talk to you. We have so many questions for you. But first of all, (laughs) we just want to know more about how you became a happiness researcher this is such a unique job that we didn't really know existed until your work <laughs> uh, so what led to this field of study
3: i didn't know that profession existed either okay. but um 10 years ago i think this month uh, and i set up the happiness research institute oh, wow and the idea came to me i think it was the fall of 2012 I was uh, spending a a late evening in the office at the the company at the think tank I was working for back then, uh, a think tank on uh, sustainability. Mm. And something called the World Happiness Report, commissioned by the UN, had just come out. And it looked at What's the literature around happiness research, but it also included a list or ranking of happiness levels in countries around the
4: world. Mm-hmm.
3: And there was 150 countries, and Denmark was in first place.
4: Oh wow!
3: And it wasn't the first time that I'd seen Denmark or one of the other Scandinavian countries in top of um, livability, quality of life, happiness, well-being rankings. And I thought, why is that the case? you know why are these countries often doing so well in in happiness rankings there should be somebody in denmark looking into this there should be somebody creating a think tank on happiness and then i thought maybe i should do that
2: wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> right?
3: and i think you know it's it's one of those interesting moments in life when when you realize that you know somebody should do something. And then you realize that somebody should be you or could be you. Right, right. I just thought it would be so much fun to study happiness and understand how do we improve quality of life. Um, And I just couldn't let go of that thought. Uh, But, you know, those of you that remember 2012, you know, we were still in the wake of the financial crisis. And, you know, I had a stable fine job so I thought maybe it's also a little bit risky to start something as crazy as a happiness research institute um, but the the there's a more personal side of the story is that um, I had a mentor at the company I was working for uh, who I really looked up to uh, who was 15 years uh, older than I was and you know he was a great colleague, great boss looked like a, a great husband and and, uh, and dad to his kids and I thought I would like to be him in 15 years. Uh, And unfortunately, also in 2012, he he became very ill and and, and died Mm. uh, shortly thereafter when he was 49. Oh,
2: wow.
3: And many years ago, my own mother had also died when she was 49. Mm. So I just started to reflect back then, what if I only live to see 49? Um, What should I spend the 15 years left I have until I'm 49 doing? Right. And I can continue with this job, which is fine. But... I'm not feeling the same energy or passion or interest around it as I'm doing with this crazy idea that is keeping me up at night. Um, and then I essentially just quit uh, and wow. started out uh, with what I thought was a, was a good idea and a bad laptop. <laughs> um, and now 10 years in, I, I know that is going to be the de- best decision that I'm going to make uh, in my career. And um, so we are, we are 10 people now at the Institute uh, from, Many different professions: um, political science, sociology, philosophy, business, physics, whatnot. And basically, we work with three core questions um, that I also deal with in in the books, essentially, um, namely, what is happiness, or how do we measure it? Why are some people happier than others? And thirdly, what can we do to improve quality of life? So, yeah, that's how we started, and and then. A couple of years ago, we also opened a, a sort of a sister organization. We, we have now a happiness museum here in Copenhagen oh, cool. uh, because we got so many people who wanted to, c- to come by and see our office. And I mean, it's right. a fine office, yeah. but we're essentially people sitting in front of computers looking at, at numbers. But people imagine we have puppies and ice cream. Uh, oh, totally. That is, know.
2: I imagine your office is like full of like rainbows. It's only on Wednesdays,
4: yeah. right?
3: <laughs> Unicorn Friday. Got it, got it. Uh, <laughs> but we thought let's create an exhibition where people can come and explore some of the questions we're working with. So we, so we opened that a couple of years ago. Wow,
2: wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Wow, what a risk. We're, I'm very glad you took that risk a decade oh, ago. Me too, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so... When I think of happiness research, I do think of a bit of a question mark because happiness is so ethereal and like hard to quantify. How, this is such a large question, how does the <laughs> Happiness Research Institute go about collecting its data?
3: Well, we we recognize what you're saying that, yes, right. it's a nebulous, subjective, complex term. And you and I, we we read different things into happiness Mm -hmm. or what the good life is. So what we need to do is we need to address that when we are measuring it and we need to break it down and look at smaller ingredients or smaller components. Because, I mean, happiness is a sense of purpose or meaning in life. It's the puppies and ice cream Wednesday at the (laughs) office. It's joy. It's laughter. It's reading good books. It's wine. It's dancing and it's feeling satisfied and content with your life. So it's complex. And when we look at other complex things, like if we were to talk about how is the American economy doing, we would also break that down into more sort of precise terms like GDP per capita, inflation, growth, exports, how strong is the dollar, uh, what's the unemployment rate. And that gives us a language to talk about how is the US economy doing. So that's also what we do with happiness. We look at overall sense of purpose and meaning in life. We look at whether you laughed yesterday. Did you feel optimistic? Did you feel worried? Did you feel stressed? Did you feel anxious? We look at whether people are content or satisfied with life. And then ideally what we do in, in the best studies is we follow people over time. Mm,
2: right, so right.
3: we would follow you and 10,000 and 10, of your, your listeners over the next decade, uh, asking them questions about happiness, satisfaction, purpose, And then see when people's lives change, you know, when um, they move to San Francisco or Copenhagen or to the countryside or get a dog or have kids or get married. How does that impact satisfaction? How does it impact joy? How does it impact purpose? So so break it down, follow people uh, and see how changes in their lives impact uh, these these different uh, elements. That makes total that's the sense. Short answer. Yeah, I
2: was going to say, and we can see that reflected. <laughs> that's, ten year,
3: that's ten years' research. Right. I know. In, Thank in you for
2: it. putting it in that soundbite. I know it's a lot to ask, and and we can also see that reflected in in your work. Like the art of making memories isn't about like general happiness; it's about the memory aspect of happiness and how that impacts our happiness. And like, who doesn't love a longitudinal study, right? Like, <laughs> we need
3: to put that on a T-shirt,
2: right? Yeah. You can have that. That's free. No. Right, great. <laughs> so, most people in the US were introduced to your research through the little book of Huga. How did you decide to introduce the world to your research in such a specifically
3: Danish way?
2: <laughs> it
3: was after I had researched happiness, I think, for about three years. It was after spending a lot of time looking at policies, looking at the Scandinavian welfare state. Mm. Um, what's unique about the Scandinavian policies that enables people to, to flourish. I started then to look more at culture. So what is uniquely Danish, what is uniquely Scandinavian that perhaps can explain why Denmark and the other Nordic countries are doing well. And then hygge came up. And I hadn't at first been aware of Hugo perhaps because... It's so ingrained in my culture in Denmark, in the everyday conversation, in our traditions, in everything we do. And then I wrote about it, and then it completely exploded and just sort of went global.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um
3: the, right it now it's it's translated to 38 languages.
2: Wow. Oh my. And God. I
3: think I think it's a testimony to what I believe that the the fact is that that hygge is not a danish thing, it's a human thing. Right. It's something a lot of us feel, it's something a lot of us experience. Other countries other languages just just didn't have a word before to describe that feeling or that situation or that atmosphere. So I've received so many, so many letters from from lovely readers around the world saying, "I've been having Hugo all my life. I just didn't know there was a word for it." Totally. And I I specifically remember um, a French lady who wrote me exactly that. I've been having Hugo all my life. I I just didn't know there was a word for it. And she wrote earlier, I might have had an afternoon with my two kids, and we you know we would have been on on the sofa and and had some tea and some biscuits and i would have called it a lazy afternoon now i call it a hyggelig afternoon <laughs> and i thought that's great we removed the guilt from what should be a nice activity uh, with your kids right but yeah i think i think it's a very uh, normal human feeling and experience and and now we can all globally use the word uh hygge for it. But Danes think we have a monopoly on Hugo, but we don't. We have right. we had a monopoly on the word that described that feeling.
2: Right? Great word for it. Where we're like, it's coziness, but more. You know. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yes.
2: So on our show, we read a lot of self-help books. And yours have some of our favorite formats. We come across many, many formats. What led you to end up packaging your research in such a charming and digestible way?
3: I think it wasn't intentional. I think it was when I wrote uh, the little book of Hugo and, and my other books after that, I essentially just, when I write, I imagine sitting across from somebody else at a dinner mm-hmm. and trying to have an enjoyable conversation. Right. So I mix what I think is interesting data and science and studies with anecdotes that I think are examples of what we see in the data, uh, together with what I think is a great sense of humor. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Because that would be how I would have a conversation with people. And I think that the combination of data and stories is important and, and good because as John Halliwell, one of my uh, friends and, and and fellow happiness researchers said at one point uh data shapes the science but stories spreads the science so uh, yes. so people don't remember data but they remember stories so so if we package uh, them together it's more likely to stick and I think that's also important uh when we look at self-help and, and happiness research you know how do we make people not only read it but remember it uh, so so they can sort of build it into their everyday lives as well
2: and I mean, I definitely think a lot of at least the self-help books we've come across on the show don't necessarily think like, if this book were a conversation, they're just like, get that data out or like, you know, meet that <laughs> word count. So yeah, like we we as readers really appreciate your approach. Oh, thank you. Um, we are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Mike will be answering questions from some of our listeners. So stick around. All right, we are back with our very special guest, Mike Viking, the author of The Little Book of HugA and The Art of Making Memories. Now, Mike, we have some questions from our listeners. Uh, let's start with this one we got from Don, who says, how do you balance the planning and effort involved in making memories versus needing relaxation and unscheduled free time?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: I, I like that one. Um, I think every moment is not going to be something we remember forever and we have to make, you know, the everyday factory run. Right. Right. So maybe the ambition can be that once a month, Mm. we plan something that is going to be a lifetime memory, right? You don't want to be in 2050 looking back to January, 2023 and say, huh, I have no idea what I did that month. Maybe the ambition is once a month, we plan uh, something that is going to be uh, memorable for for decades. I like the idea that I talk about in The Art of Making Memories, the Apollo picnic, Mm. um, where you you organize a potluck. Everybody brings an ingredient or a dish they have not tried before. So it's the first taste of something like the Apollo mission was the first man on the moon. Right, right. And when you have a new taste, where you have a new experience, uh, it's more likely to stick to, to memory. It's also why people, you know, they remember everything they did when they were a teenager, but in their 30s, it's more sort of hazy. Uh, Because we have more first-time experiences when we're teenagers. So bring a new dish, something you haven't tried before, maybe even something that scares you a little bit. So a habanero chili should definitely scare you. (laughs)
4: Um,
3: You call it the Apollo Picnic because every once in a while you hear of the Apollo Mission and that triggers the memory of that fun time you had uh, with your friends where you're eating uh, habanero chili and uh, had a bit of pain in your mouth for a couple of hours
2: man, my mouth is hot. <laughs> no. And I think that's a nice, like approachable goal. I think, especially when it comes to like parenting, there's a lot of pressure to make like every moment memorable. And it's right. like that, that's right. not achievable. Like, but every month yeah. that seems doable and that leaves lots yeah. of room for unscheduled time and chilling.
3: Yeah and if i can add one thing to to dawn's question mm-hmm. um this was not in the book because it was it was a a polish reader who told me afterwards there in the book there is a, a chapter on attention that is the sort of foundation of memory and this lady read the book and and she told me she was reminded by a time when she was 8 which i think was about 30 years ago and at the time she's sitting with her uh, mom and her sister and they're eating this colorful Polish dish, I forgot the name of, but they're they're having fun, they're laughing, they're feeling happy. And then at one point, her mother turns to her and her sister and says, I hope you remember this moment. And here we are 30 years later, the lady still remembers right. that moment because her mother made her pay attention to it. So so maybe it's not necessarily the planning, but calling it out when you want your kids to remember that moment. And, but the, the thing is, you can only do it once. Right, so it's one bullet. Oh man. Because if you do it every night, they're going to tell you to shut up on day three.
2: Then it's that it becomes like the white noise of life. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. I was like, that's a great one to whip out all the time, but you you <laughs> stop me in my tracks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our next question comes from Sybil who says, "I'm curious if Mike feels that there are different huga rituals that are appropriate for different moods or different levels of wellness and how he distinguishes
3: those." No, I I I don't think huga should be a doctrine or there is no sort of right routines. Whatever works for you. I think I think huga has to do with feeling good. Feeling relaxed, enjoying the atmosphere, feeling connected with the people you are with, or with the book and the rain and the glass of wine. Um I, I don't think we need we, we shouldn't overthink Hugu. Right, um
4: right.
3: it's 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 not a routine, it's not, you know, seven steps you have to get to Huguen Nirvana. It's enjoying life. It's giving yourself a break, it's it's simple pleasures, it's really basic, it's really I think human. And universal. So I, I, I don't want to dictate how a, a huger routine should be done. So whatever works for, for Sybil, I mean, go ahead.
2: All right. Our next question is from Cassie. Cassie says... I'm the mom of a small child, 20 months, and would love tips on how to really make the most of this time, how to be present to all of it. It feels like the time disappears in laundry, cleaning, work, cooking. And I know these are truly precious moments, and I want to get them to sink in more deeply
3: somehow. I'm in the same situation. (laughs) Congrats. Um, Thank you. But Again, we, we, we are not going to remember everything. And I think that that's also okay. Mm. But we should understand that, that memory works through association. And we can use all our five different senses to trigger a certain memory. So I'm sure Cassie is taking a lot of pictures, uh, probably also videos. You could also record just the sound mm. uh, of her, her daughter or, or her son. Scent, music, Um is, is also something she can plant uh, that that perhaps can, can trigger something. Um, so, so in the book, I talk about uh, Andy Warhol. He would wear the same perfume every day for three months and then never wear that perfume again. So that meant that over time, he had sort of developed a, a museum of, of, of scent or museum of memories. You could say, okay, now I want to go back to the spring of 1982 and then take a whiff of that perfume he wore back then, and see what memories would, would would come back. Maybe maybe go with that, or you know, for a month, listen over and over again a certain song, and then see you know when you hear that song a year from now, what memories will will pop up back then. Um, also revisit uh, places you have mm-hmm. gone with with your son and daughter, see what comes back up. And uh, that was part of, of of the fun research I got to do for for the book revisiting my my childhood uh, town and home even i wrote the people who are living there now whether i could come in and see (laughs) and that was a lot of fun the kitchen was still the same as it was um you know 25 years ago so it. it, it triggers things that 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 you had just forgotten and hadn't thought about for for decades so revisiting places um Using the different senses would be a way to um, sort of harvest some of the memories or or, or create triggers for, for memories in the future.
2: Yeah, and I like that it can be small things that almost like run in the background as opposed to like every moment make it memorable with something big or flashy or a huge activity or something. Okay, let's move on to this question from Jennifer, who wants to know, is it really realistic to apply Danish Huga principles in the US or Canada? I'm thinking of all the advantages they have in a welfare state like Denmark in the context of record inflation and housing insecurity. Will any Huga practices even make a difference?
3: Um, Jennifer is right in that sense that there are some some policies in place that right. perhaps makes it easier for Danes to, to have because we have shorter work weeks. Um, we have sort of good security net, uh, good unemployment benefits. There's, there's basically less to worry about in Denmark compared to the U S but that said, it doesn't have to be perfect. And Denmark is by no means perfect, but, but we have good conditions, but, but I think even you know less good conditions. Hygge is also possible, of course. Right. I see the anecdotal evidence from my American readers who write me about their Hygge experiences. But in my latest book, My Hygge Home, I've looked at Google searches for Hygge in the US
2: mm-hmm. and
3: found an interesting pattern because the further north you are, the more likely you are to Google Hygge.
2: The colder, the colder we are.
3: <laughs> exactly. So so the state that Googles Hygge the most is Vermont.
2: Oh, my gosh. <laughs>
3: which I think should be the new Vermont uh, slogan, right? Vermont, the Hygge state, right? The Hygge state, um, that's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the, the states that Google Hygge the least was Alabama and Florida or Texas or something like that. Mm. I think that's a testimony to what I feel Hygge is to the Danes, a survival strategy for winter. Right. It's cold, it's dark, it's wet. Um let's just get indoors and sort of put on some some blankets and some nice music and and have some treats and some tea and some coffee and light some candles. We can do that no matter where we are in the world. Um of course if we, we are sort of around the equator maybe skip you know skip the skip the blankets but otherwise I think we're good. Again I don't think we should overthink it. It is is it's essentially just about relaxing and um, enjoying simple pleasures. Right. And, and you can do that around the world, I believe.
2: And I think, like, coping. Like, it can be used to help relax when you're coping with, you know, shitty system that promotes inequity, mm. as well as the winter. Right. You know, like, that's how I've been thinking about it, at least.
3: No, I think that's a good point. And also that that's how a lot of Danes use hygge to sort of get a bit of relaxation, and give yourself a break in a turbulent world. Right. I mean, especially 2022 was tough for a lot of people. We now have a war on the European continent. Inflation is going up. People are struggling. So I think that's also why a lot of, of people now are focusing more on the home because it's it's the zone of control we have. Mm-hmm. I don't have control over the war in in Ukraine or a global pandemic, but but I do have control over what what we're having for dinner tonight right right and what the atmosphere is going to be around the table. So I think that's also how how Danes use hygge in these sort of uncertain turbulent uh, times yeah.
2: This next question uh is a little lighter. It comes from Instagram from someone with the username Eggboo. Eggboo says, "Please ask Mike about how to use taper candles. Is there one per room? Should we get candle holders and candelabras? Also, where should we seek out unscented candles? Apparently, unscented is the Hugo way?" Yeah,
3: so so <clears throat> yeah, unscented is is definitely what Danes prefer, but a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to a reporter at the New York Times who told me that um, now McDonald's have burger-scented candles.
2: Oh, my goodness.
3: Which <laughs> I'm not sure what I should think of, but I, I, it's probably not the route I would go. No, um, no. <laughs> but again, number of, of candles per room, it doesn't matter. Again, it's it's not a doctrine. Whatever works for was it egg eggboo? Eggboo, yeah. <laughs> eggboo. Okay. Whatever works for Eggboo. Um it's interesting that, that there's been a I mean, Huguen definitely put a lot of focus on candles. And and Danes, we use a lot of candles yeah. because it gives off a nice, soft, warm light. We enjoy that. That creates a, a hugly atmosphere in the room. But I, I, I also used a, a story from uh, a Canadian Canadian reader of mine in in my latest book, and it actually gave gave me the idea for for my latest book because I think I have an, a chapter in the little book of Hugo about candles. Right, it's definitely a chapter around lighting. And Yannick, uh, a Canadian guy, he he read the little book of Hugo, and because of the talk about candles and the importance for for Hugo, he went out and he bought candle holders and he started to light. Uh, candles for dinner at home with his uh, family, and him and his wife. They have three teenage sons. And at first, when when Yannick was lighting the candles, his his teenagers were giving him a hard time. You no, know, mm. Dad, what's going on with the candles? Do you want to have some romantic time with mom? <laughs> Should we leave? Uh, but he told me eventually, the boys they started to light the candles for mm, dinner.
4: Cute.
3: And I think the best thing he said was, "Now our family dinners last." 15 to 20 minutes longer because the difference in atmosphere around the table puts the boys in a storytelling mode. Mm. So instead of just sitting down, shoveling down their food, they sit down, they sip their wine, and they talk about their day. So I don't think candles are going to change the world, but I think it's interesting to see how a couple of candles at a dinner table changes how a family interacts that comes down to how do we connect with people and and how do we change the atmosphere uh, in the room? So I was really happy with, with that story.
2: No. And that makes sense. My, my mom's from Minnesota, a place where it gets nice and, and cold and far North. And I'm realizing she likes to light a taper candle or two for dinner. And often when I was growing up, if I heard a match strike, I knew it was time to like turn off the TV so ah. you're right. It does sort of help set the mood and it becomes part of All the right. routine and yeah. And promotes togetherness, less like TV watching right.
3: during dinner. Paulo's Paulo's dogs, but with three Exactly. Like <laughs>
2: All right. We are going to take one more quick break, but when we come back, we have one last question for Mike Viking.
1: So stay with us.
2: Okay, we are back, and we are talking with Mike Biking, happiness and HugA expert, and we have one last question for you, which is, in your book, The Art of Making Memories, you recommend collecting small keepsakes to help keep the memory of certain happy moments alive and more present in your day-to-day life. Is there anything that you collect to help keep your memories alive?
3: I do. Um, it's often random. It's, it's often when I have an experience of something I want to remember. And it can be a, a physical object or it could also be a set that I try to store. Uh, one example could be I, I have the uh, feather of an eagle. Um, Which I collected uh, when I was uh, in Canada with my good friends John and Millie, who who is a couple who are in their eighties, uh, and we were visiting their place at Hornby Island, which is I think six hours north of Vancouver, and we just had, you know, a wonderful weekend of great conversation and hikes and good food. I remember we had crab. And it was just the kind of weekend you want to remember. You want to stick. And at one point, we and this is special to a Dane. You know, it might be, you know, just a regular Monday for you Americans, but we, we, we saw an pretty eagle special. <laughs> uh, with um, a fish. Right? Yeah, yeah I, I thought it was. Uh, oh, we saw cool. we saw an eagle flying with with a fish in its mouth. And later, we 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 found the feather of an eagle. So I I, I took that because. I know that is going to remind me of of, of those mm. times, so that that's special to me. Um, but it could also be um, uh, a scent, um, like like I mentioned before. So, so a couple of years ago, while I was in uh, Bornholm, um and I had a lovely day. Just I'd been out um, spearfishing, and I came back out of the water, and I was just sort of, sort of feeling really happy, sitting on a warm rock and i thought what can i do to hold on to this feeling and this memory and uh, i know this is weird but there was a (laughs) there was a pile of dried seaweed next to me and um i don't have any before that any special memory attached to dried seaweed which is sort of a a distinct
4: uh,
3: (laughs) scent so i took a good whiff of that uh, because now, when I when I smell that, that is that is going to trigger memory of of, of that moment. So things like that. Um,
2: You're not like a like spoon collector or anything. You're not like everywhere I go, I pick up
3: a I, a, a burger scented candle. No, um,
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I, I I do things like that
2: nice yeah just sort of little little things here and there whether it's a small a small trinket or just a scent or a taste and just trying to like hold that for a second and and make it memorable
3: exactly
2: well thank you so much for For that beautiful answer and for talking to us. It's been such a pleasure. Likewise. Can you tell our listeners how they can find more of you? What's your you have a another? You have a hookah home book coming out or that just came out?
3: I think, yeah, I think it just came out in 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 the US. Uh so my hookah home is the latest, which basically looks at you know how do we Mm. take a house and turn it into a home. So things like we've been talking about today, how do we connect better? Uh, and how do we use sort of the architecture of happiness to to sort of stack the deck in our favor when it comes to well-being. Um, and of course, there's the happinessresearchinstitute.com uh, where, where our reports and studies are, are published. Uh, we have a newsletter. I, I have social media channels. Um, so I think there are different options.
2: Awesome. Thank you so, so much for talking to us.
3: Thank you, Jelena. And thank you to, to all the, the great questions from... Cassie and Jennifer and Ekbu and, <laughs> and, uh, and the rest.
2: And that's it for this bonus episode of By the Book. Huge thank you to our amazing production team at Stitcher, Nora Ritchie and Marcus Hom. Thanks also to Nate Wida, who composed our theme song, and to the Rizzos who
0: performed it. Please stay in touch. Our email address is kristenangelenta at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at Jolenta G, at Kristen Meinzer, or at Buy the Book Pod. At Buy Pod is also where you can follow us on Instagram.
2: And please rate us and review us wherever you're listening right now. Just look down, hit five stars, write a little review. It helps people find the show. And who doesn't want to find us? And if you haven't already, tell a friend about the show. Don't tell Mike Viking. He already knows. But tell your other friends.
0: <laughs> Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jalenta Greenberg. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.